All right, today's topic is the second coming of Jesus, also called the return of Jesus. This is great stuff. And so Jeremy Rini wrote a book, How Will the World End? And he says, whenever we talk about the return of Jesus, sometimes people have one, kind of generally one of three responses. First, finally, I was wondering when we're going to get to the good stuff. Right? We've been talking about First and Second Thessalonians, the return of Jesus. There's been some indications. Now we're really getting into some meat and potatoes today. So a lot of people come in that category. Another group of people say, I can feel myself getting confused already. Okay, Because there's a lot of different details and stuff to do with the second coming and things we've heard or things we've read. Like, I'm already getting confused. Third category of people, who cares about all those details? I'm just glad Jesus is coming back. Right. So usually people find themselves in one of those three categories. Uh, maybe you're in another category. Now, I personally grew up in a tradition that didn't really talk about the second coming of Jesus very much, but which I thought that was kind of strange because in liturgy, in prayers, and in official statements of the church, it talked about the second coming of Jesus. I just didn't hear a lot of teaching uh, about it. For example, the Apostles' Creed that many of us grew up saying, right? Uh, what does it say? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's a phrase about the return of Jesus. Every time we celebrate communion, right? We go through that historic statement of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's right. One pastor who's looked through a lot of this stuff and studied it through the New Testament, he says that the return of Jesus is referenced in the New Testament 318 times. That's a lot, okay? And this is something that people continue to be fascinated with and curious about. They're posting. It's often trending on social media. So a couple days ago, I went and found the hashtag, Jesus is coming soon. I was just over on Twitter or uh, X, as it is now called, and there's a whole bunch of interesting things that people are posting about that, but they're talking about the return of Jesus, so it continues to be of interest. Now, when people get into this topic, there can be really two unhealthy polar opposites, okay? And so one of those opposites is to never talk about it, to never think about it. We know something's there about that, but just to totally disengage with it as if it is unimportant. And so that's an unhealthy extreme. I think another unhealthy extreme is some people who obsess about this all the time. It's as if it's the only thing about their faith that they care about, and they just spend time, you know, with calculators, you know, trying to figure out everything else, and they avoid all the other stuff. That is also an unhealthy extreme. And so what we want to do is we want to look at the text, see what it says, and we want to avoid it and kind of think, okay, what can we learn about this, but putting it in the larger context of the big picture. And so today's text from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 it talks about this. It's one of the main texts that addresses the return of Jesus. There are many others, but this is one of the main ones, and it's used. It's also sometimes misused, and so we'll talk about that uh, a little bit. But it's pastorally motivated, okay? So the Apostle Paul is writing, of course, and he's, he's writing to people who have real uh, concerns and issues. And one of the, and this is an early church. So the church in Thessalonica is established less than 20 years from the resurrection of Jesus. So these are the early days. And some of their brothers and sisters and family members who are fellow believers, they've died. And they're one, we know Jesus is coming back. They're worried that maybe they're going to miss out because they're dead. Are they going to miss out on this, this, this wonderful thing of Jesus returning and how he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth? So Paul addresses that concern, and in so doing, we get a bunch of other details about what is going to happen. So far, he has talked about being ready. He has talked about being loving. He has talked about being holy. These are all facets of our readiness but today we're going to get into some more specifics. As we do this, I want you to keep two things in mind. 
The first is don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. Don't lose the forest for the trees because that's a temptation with this stuff. Look at all these details, how everything fits together. These details are important. They're very important. They're in Scripture. We are taught them. At the same time, we can't get so lost in this or that detail that we lose the big picture of what is happening. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, the second thing is a question I encourage you to have in your mind. How does the return of Jesus keep us moving forward in hope? Okay? We all need hope. How does this keep us moving forward in hope? Because that's part of the function. It's supposed to do that. People are confused. People are anxious. People are worried. People are fearful. People are a whole bunch of different things. But the return of Jesus, part of its function is to keep us moving forward in hope. And so we're going to explore some of those implications. So, as we think through all this, and even before we get to the text itself, we need to place the return of Jesus in the larger context of what is happening in human history. And I've put together a bit of a graphic that describes it. Sorry for some of the cheesy graphics. You've got to work with what you have. But I think that visually will, um, will help you track along with what I'm saying. Okay? So one day Jesus will return, and he will usher in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. What's that all about? Okay, well, if you look on the left side, right, that picture, that represents creation. God created this beautiful, wonderful world. Okay, we all know that, Genesis 1. But then sin and brokenness and violence and evil came into that world. And you see that middle picture of the earth that looks kind of gray. That represents the brokenness and reality of the world. It's that world into which Jesus came. And so seeing Jesus with that one is the first coming of Jesus. And so God has been redeeming his creation. He has been redeeming his people. This is inaugurated in Jesus when Jesus comes the first time. And that triumph and that victory will come to consummation or completion when he comes again. Okay? So all of a sudden, God's creation and God's people, everything, everything will be renewed and renovated to how it was originally intended to be in the first place before everything became marred and broken by sin evil. Okay? And so that quote that you see at the bottom, the Apostle Peter writes in the second letter that bears his name, chapter 3, verse 13, according to his promise, God's promise, we are waiting for a what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this is what Jesus is going to usher in. So righteousness, living in a way that is right before God and others, right? Where everything is in this perfect, beautiful, worshipful, peaceful, harmony and love overflowing this is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when Jesus does return, he will come as judge and savior. Judge and savior. And today, in, in, in the modern West, I'll actually address this in the Q&A forum later, but uh, we can think of down of a, a judge and someone who punishes. Primarily, a judge in the Old Testament was someone who restores order. Okay? He will come as judge and we know this is a godly order, and Savior, we know more about that term. Come as judge and Savior. All people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Jesus will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And Jesus himself explains this in Matthew 25. Goats are those who have rejected Jesus. The sheep are God's people. And so there will be a lot more goats than there will be sheep. The gate is wide leads to destruction, many enter through it, right? But narrow is the gate that leads to life and only a few find it. Christ will usher in the new heavens and the new earth 
And we're reminded of this reality in Revelation 21. And this vision is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. We often read it at funerals. You see it quoted online and everything else, right? There'll be a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21. God will be living amongst his people, the new Jerusalem. He will wipe every tear from their eye. No more mourning or crying or death or pain for the old order, the old order of things, the middle picture there, will pass away Why it's replaced with the new heavens and the new earth. So right before we get into the text, one more piece of historical context because this figure's important. If we're going to understand this seminal passage is a specific word. It's a word parousia in Greek, okay? Now, usually it's translated in today's text and elsewhere as coming, so the coming of Jesus or the presence of Jesus, and that's good. But this is one of those words that was used in the wider world, okay, in the wider Greek-Roman world. And it conjured two things. One, a divine presence, okay, a parousia, a divine presence or or a divine representative. The second sense of this word was a royal presence, So a divine presence and a royal presence. Think of a royal dignitary uh, coming to a town. Think of of a divine presence. And so as Paul is looking for a word to describe the return of Jesus, one of the key words is the parousia, okay? The divine and royal presence, and we'll come back to that because that figures into our understanding. Okay, so with that introduction, we're going to jump right into the text. We're going to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. If you want to open your Bibles, that's great. It's also on the screen, and I'm reading from the ESV. And here he continues, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, or brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Right? That's a euphemism for death. Remember? There's a very specific pastoral concern. Our brothers and sisters in the faith who have died, will they miss out? I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's going to bring with him people who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, meaning he's not making it up, he's received this instructions from the Lord himself, that we who are alive, us, who are left until the coming, parousia, of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, we will not go first. Our loved ones who have died in the faith, they will be a part of the first wave to meet the Lord. Okay? So this, he's already assuring them. For the Lord himself, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, the Lord meaning Jesus, with a, and he's going to list three things, a cry of command. A cry of command. The voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ will meet Jesus first. Now I want to say a couple words about these three things specifically. A loud command. That's a very significant, obviously, a loud command. This happens throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. The voice of an archangel will be present. What's the deal? Um, An archangel is like a head angel, a chief angel of great power. Now in the Bible, um, only one archangel is given a name. That's Michael. Um, but what we're told from Jesus, when Jesus talks about his return, he talks about the presence of angels. So there's going to be an archangel, other angels, and their function is to gather the people together at the harvest. That's, that's part of their function. And then the trumpet call of God. Now, trumpets in the Old Testament specifically represent either a call to battle or the very presence of the Lord. And so why would like a battle cry be here? Well, it might be the case. Think of that bigger picture that this is a moment where fully and finally there will be the great triumph over Satan, death, evil itself. Could be that. 
Uh, could also just be to indicate the presence of God, right? So back in the Ten Commandments, the book of Exodus, uh, before God reveals the Ten Commandments to Moses, there's the sound of the trumpet. And so all these Im- images are conjured. But we, what we need to see here is that this is a very dramatic, bold public event that no one is going to miss, okay? It is a bold, this language is designed to tell us this is, this is big, it is bold, Everyone is going to understand what's going on. It's not like you're going to be sitting in the basement watching Netflix, and because you've had the volume too loud, you're going to miss out. No. Everyone is going to see it. Commenting on this passage, Dr. David Williams describes the return of Jesus like this. Irresistible authority, indescribable grandeur. Irresistible authority, indescribable grandeur. Okay, verse 17. Then, then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. In, this is dramatic stuff. I told you. This is, this is wild. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, now there's several things going on that I want to highlight in this verse. First of all, it says we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And this is something that gets lost in translation. Remember how we talked about that word parousia? And in the wider culture, that was a word that referred to a divine presence and a royal presence. Well, another word that is used kind of in that context is this specific word for meat. And here's the idea. And we need to know this. So in the ancient world, when a royal dignitary came to visit a city, the people of the city, the host city, would go out of the gates to meet this person and escort them back into the city as a sign of respect and honor. Okay? And this is the same word that's used here for meat. And I think because of what we know about the word parousia, what Paul is doing is he's using that language so people say, oh, just how a royal dignitary would come to a city and we would go out to meet him and usher him back in, so it is going to be with the return of Jesus. Now, second detail, it says, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. I want to do a small digression about uh, something called rapture theology. So there is a line of of thinking that's really only kind of become popular since um, this guy named Darby in a a study Bible that he had, it's it's kind of manifests in a system of thought called uh, dispensationalism. But anyway, he, uh, I'm not going to get into it all here, but basically this idea that Jesus will come and then people will meet him and they will not come into the city as was the royal custom, but will turn around and leave. And then there'll be this period of tribulation uh, and evil on the earth because the presence of God is no longer there. So this isn't really the second coming of Jesus, this is like a, like a prequel, I guess, to the coming of Jesus. And it's a long, involved thing. Um, but what I'm saying here is, is I think that the language that's being used isn't indicating that people are going to come and meet Jesus and then disappear with him for a time. Uh, but in fact, they're actually going to come to earth as Jesus comes to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So this is actually an act of respect and grace and hospitality with our divine and royal guest as he comes to renew and renovate all things. So... I'm not going to really get in, and by the way, the word here for snatched up comes from the Latin rapture, so that's where that comes from. I'm not going to really get into that all. If you're interested in that, you have questions about that, I do explain more about that whole thing in the Pulse podcast with Matthew Rattan on the, uh, the growing deeper background content. It'll come out tomorrow at about 11 uh, on the podcast, uh, so you can check that uh, out. And then it says that he will be on the clouds. Now, this is not a weather report, it's a glory report. 
Okay, it's not like the weather matters. What we are to see here is that Jesus, in his very trial, he talks about coming as the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with, with power and great authority and splendor. And so this really is, again, reflecting the words of Jesus. And if you, by the way, go through all the th- major things that Paul says about the return of Jesus, he is simply echoing what Jesus has already said about the return of Jesus. So he's not making up new things. He's um, reiterating what Jesus has said. Okay. Uh, then verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words, right? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, now concerning the times and season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now thieves are bad, so that's not what's being referred to. It's the element of surprise. There is going to be an element of surprise. While people are saying there's peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Right? And so a pregnant woman, she knows she's pregnant. She's going to have the baby. She doesn't really know exactly when it's going to happen until she starts to realize it is happening. So it will be with the return of Jesus. But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Right? So here, obviously, you know, drunkenness figures into it. But really, the idea is alertness. This is big picture alertness that he's talking about. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. This kind of sounds like the armor of God from Ephesians 6. It's kind of a truncated version. Breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Which also echoes something else he said in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. I just think it's interesting. I think Paul's bringing together other things that he has taught. Put on the armor of God, live in faith, hope, and love, and this is your readiness. Armor of God, faith, hope, and love. So I think he's bringing all that together in a very compact way. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, so living or dead, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul has just given them a whole bunch of details, right? And I can only imagine them in that community going through this over and over. Oh my goodness, this is wild stuff. Combing through it. And it leaves them wanting more. And maybe it leaves you wanting more. And so we get the sense that after they had received this letter, they're going to write back, tell us more. What about this? What about this? Right? And so Paul will actually accommodate their requests. He will highlight some things that have to occur before Jesus returns. He will talk about a rebellion that needs to occur. He has to talk about the man of lawlessness who needs to be revealed. What is that all about? Well, they have to wait till 2 Thessalonians, and so will you. Uh, But today that suffices, and so this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I invited you to keep two things in mind. The first was about keeping the forest for the trees, right? And so this is about remembering the big picture. And this is the first one. Be confident that Jesus is coming back to renew and renovate all things. This is the big picture. And this is incredibly good news. Think of creation and life and the violence and evil and all the crazy stuff in our world. It's not always going to be that way. And the return of Jesus reminds us in a great and glorious hope that he is coming back to renew and renovate all things as they were originally intended to be. And this is the consistent view throughout the New Testament. Bible scholar N.T. Wright explains it like this. What we have here, with minor variations, 
is a remarkably unanimous view spread throughout Christianity. There will come a time, which might indeed come at any time, when in the great renewal of the world that Easter itself foreshadowed, Jesus himself will be personally present and will be the agent and model of that transformation that will happen both to the whole world and also to believers. End quote. We renovate kitchens, God renovates the world. We renovate the garage, God renovates humanity. Imagine a world without pain, it is coming. Imagine a world without conflict, it's coming. Imagine a world without tears, it is coming. Imagine a world without death, it is coming. Imagine a world without senseless violence, it's coming. Imagine a world where no worry or anxiety exists. It's coming. Two, know that Jesus' return is unfolding according to a plan. Next slide. And so we might not understand all the specifics, and we will be given some here and in Matthew 25 and elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians. And we can know some of the things. We will not all know all of the things. And that might leave us with the impression that something, you know, th- things are just haphazard. No. It unfolds according to a plan. One of the famous, um, one of the characters in the world-famous allegory called the Pilgrim's Progress, which you know I love. Here's, he picks up on this when he says this. At the day of doom, we shall not be doomed to death or life according to the hectoring spirits of the world, but according to the wisdom and law of the highest. According to the wisdom and law of the highest. That's a poetic reminder of what God is doing. Okay, so those are two big picture elements. And from there I said, how does the return of Jesus keep us moving forward in hope? Here's some of the ways. Number three, take comfort that not one of God's people will be left behind. This is actually the whole pastoral point of what Paul is saying. If you are in Christ, no one is left behind. Everyone will share in the victory party, even those who have already died in the faith, he says. Everyone will share in the victory party of life over death, love over hate, light over darkness, righteousness over sin. Everyone. And the implication for us today is very hope-filled. The person who has faith but sometimes has questions that they just can't square in their head, they too will share in the victory of Christ and how he is making all things new. The person who stays up all night worrying and can't wait for some sort of existence when that is no longer the case, they will share in the victory of Christ and how he is making all things new. The person who has struggled their whole life with a debilitating illness they too will share in the victory of Christ and how he is making all things new. The person who was told when they were very young that they're a failure, and they grow up and they start to believe that, and every time they look in the mirror, they reinforce the lie. That person, they will also share in the victory of Christ and how he is making all things new. The person whose life has not turned out as planned and they have so much regret or problems, so many things that they didn't anticipate, which is just choking their soul. They will share in the victory of Christ and how he is making all things new. Not one of God's people will be left behind. Four, back one. Look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. That guy is happy. Look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. Can you imagine seeing Jesus face to face? Think of someone you've been apart from for a very long time and you love them 
and, and, and they love you, and this person has even given their life, so much of their life to you. Now, it's nice to get a text. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to get, you know, maybe a message through a third party. Oh, that's great. It's even better to have a video chat with someone. That's great. But seeing them face to face, there's nothing like that. A hug in the flesh, being with them. You know what taught us the value of that? The pandemic. Remember when everything was shut down? And, um, you know, uh, was it, you know, some, some meal, maybe, maybe it was for you, it was Easter meal or a Thanksgiving meal or just some with a friend. And people kind of making meals and they're putting their device on the table and everyone's kind of eating and, hey, isn't this kind of, we're making the best of it. That was kind of novel and good for the first time or two. And after that, it stunk. Sorry. Because we were reminded about how different that is from seeing the people we love and care about face to face. Just think of that hug. First hug you had with someone. We're going to see Jesus face to face with the living Jesus when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and there will be nothing like it. Fifth and finally, his instruction for the Thessalonians then is true for us now. Live as children of light, verse 5. Paul describes what this involves with various words. Alertness, faith, hope, love. Alertness, faith, hope, love. Alertness, faith, hope, and love. Notice that this is not a retreat from the world that God loves. It is engagement with the world God loves. We don't hide away somewhere. We engage with the world God loves with alertness, faith, hope, love. And because he's talked about holiness in the previous chapter, we could put that in there as well. Live as children of light. The light of the world himself, Jesus, flickers within his people, the people he is coming to save and to bring with him in the renewal and renovation of all things. Your light will brighten someone else's dark. This is one of the things that comes up in scripture, by the way. Wars, rumors of wars. Also, the love of many will grow cold. That's what Jesus says. The love of many. The world's going to become a less loving place. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and other things. But in, in the midst of it all, that's not you. You are the children of light. And so your light will brighten someone else's dark. And if that's not a source of hope for you, it sure is for someone else. Your light will brighten someone else's dark. Your light will brighten someone else's dark. And so near the start, I highlighted that there's three responses people tend to have, according to that book. One response is, finally, I was wondering when we were going to get to the good stuff. Another response, I can feel myself getting confused already. Another one was, who cares? I'm just glad Jesus is coming back. So maybe at the start you were in one of those categories. Maybe you're still in that same category. Maybe you've moved a little bit to one of the other categories. <clears throat> Either way, I hope you are looking forward to Jesus coming back. Verse 9, we are not appointed for wrath, but for salvation. You know, that great uh, reformer Martin Luther, he said, uh, you know, he had such an impact on the church, but also human history. Uh, in general, it was said that he had two days on his calendar. Today and that day. That's a good way to live. Today, this day, we've got to deal with the stuff today. And that day, readiness for the return of Jesus. And so as we get closer to the end, whenever it is, may your light increase. May you live in expectant hope according to the law and wisdom of the highest. And may you flicker with increasing intensity with that royal and majestic light of Christ, our royal visitor who is coming, who is going to renew and renovate all things, making them new. And while all that occurs, may you brighten someone else's dark to the glory of God. Amen.